0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Zechariah chapter 5. Thank you. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 5. As we come to this text, we find a couple of very confusing images. A flying scroll and a basket with a lead lid and a woman in it. So when we look at these, we scratch our heads and we say, what in the world is this vision talking about? Very confusing. Now, before we get into interpreting the vision, it's important that we look at the nature of biblical prophecy. When we look at prophecy, we find that prophecy has near and far aspects. The near aspects would be things that would be addressed to the people of Zechariah's day. Things that they needed to grasp and understand for application for themselves. The far aspects of prophecy are distant in the future from the perspective of the prophet, sometimes even distant and in the future from our perspective, uh, several hundreds, even two or three thousand years later. We find that prophecy is often applying to both, a near and far application as opposed to one or the other. And I believe that's the case as we come into Zechariah chapter 5. What we want to see as we come into this text this morning are some principles that God's word gives us that tells us that we are to deal with sin. And it's important for us as believers to recognize that sometimes we look at sin and we think... It's really kind of bad, but it's not really that bad. It's there, but I don't really need to deal with it. I'll just sort of get along with sin for a while and hope that it doesn't get worse. That's not the way God views sin. When God looks at sin, he sees a deep-seated issue that has brought break in fellowship and relationship between him and us and we should view sin in the same way God deals with sin and so if I'm a follower of God I'm going to take a similar viewpoint towards sin I'm going to deal with it not ignore it not passively stand by and say yeah it's there but it's no big deal I'm going to understand that it's a very serious matter and that's what we find as we come into these prophecies Now, in verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the image of a flying scroll. It almost sounds like something from a movie or from a cartoon, the idea of a flying scroll. But it communicates a lot more when we start to dig in to this text. We find that this scroll reminds us this image that Zechariah saw in this sixth vision It reminds us of the fact that there is a holy God and it represents, the scroll does, the law of God that identifies sin. So let's look at how we come away with this principle. Here, Zechariah says, I looked again and there before me was a flying scroll. Now we all know what scrolls look like and the day in which Zechariah lived a scroll was about yay wide, and they would roll it up. And often it would be as much as 10 to 15 feet long. But when it got much over that in length, it would get unwieldy. You'd need a wheelbarrow to move the scroll around if it was much bigger. The scroll that Zechariah sees is so much bigger than that. And In fact, look at what verse 2 says. And he asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. Now, that's a big hunk of scroll there. And the picture is that it's unrolled and it's floating in the air. And so his description continues, and it says this. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. According to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely. So here is this vision of a scroll. We see that it has writing on both sides. One side addresses one principle and the other side addresses another principle. What does that represent? Well, when we look in Scripture, we find something amazing about God's law, the Ten Commandments. In the book of Exodus, when Moses retrieved the tablets that were written by the finger of God, the tablets were written on both sides. And this is Moses' account. It says, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. And look at this description Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. So in describing this flying scroll, what we find Zechariah doing is comparing it to the law of God, where there was writing on one side of the tablets and writing on the other. This scroll is described as something that has writing on one side and writing on the other. So many Bible scholars, and I would agree with them, believe that this flying scroll represents the law of God. And certainly that's borne out in what we find described further. When it says that there was writing on either side of the scroll, the scroll contains some specific things that were written. And look at what it bears out for us. On one side, it says every thief will be banished. According to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. Now think about the Ten Commandments for a moment. I think it's significant that the Eighth Commandment against stealing and the Third Commandment that is against bearing false witness are mentioned here. The Ten Commandments... What would be the middle commandment of the first five? The third commandment, right? What would be the middle commandment of the last five? The eighth commandment. So what he's doing really is picturing for us the entire law by giving us two examples of the law, by picking the eighth and the third commandments. These commandments were against theft And bearing false witness or swearing falsely. And what we find is a near and far application. The near application is this. When we read the minor prophets, and we've been studying them for several weeks now, some of the common sins that were brought as accusation against the children of Israel involved stealing, taking things from people, and using God's name in vain or speaking falsely and swearing by God. It was a picture of the spiritual climate of Zechariah's day. And when we think about this spiritual climate, it's amazing that they had gone back into sin in the way that they had. Remember Zechariah's day. This was a day when the children of Israel had been delivered to Babylon because of their sin... For 70 years they were in Babylon. They had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. They were in the middle of ruins brought on by their sin, sins like the ones mentioned. And now they were drifting back in to the sins that God had been dealing with before they left. You know, when I look at that, I see a picture of, of all of us, myself included. We will bear the consequences for a sin. We will experience the full brunt of the terrible things that sin can bring into our lives. And then what happens? We quickly forget. And we return back into the same behaviors, the same thought processes that got us into trouble before. This scroll and this image was a message to all of Israel that you'd better not go there again. You'd better not come into the place to where you disregard the commandments of God and just go back to doing your own thing. You see, as they were breaching these commandments, they were really breaching the whole law. James says this, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. So here, the children of Israel were returning to the same behaviors that had brought them into this breach in relationship with God. As followers of God, we need to be careful in our outlook towards sin. Sin is a serious matter. And it's something that we so easily go back into. We can never look at sin and say, hey, it's been vanquished, it's done. I never have to worry about committing sin again. As far as sin's penalty, when we've trusted Jesus Christ, we are free from the penalty of sin. But as believers, we always struggle with the presence of sin. And we need to be careful and not returning, reverting to sin that we've forsaken. This is what was going on in Zechariah's time. But then something else appears in this vision. When we come to the fourth verse, the vision continues, and it talks about the scroll being sent out by the Lord to judge the sinful. Look at verse 4. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it will destroy in his house, and destroy, or it will remain in his house, excuse me, and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. Now, as we come to this part of the vision, Zechariah is talking about how the word of God judges us. When we commit sin we are breaking the commandment of God. It's not something that is a trivial matter. It is something of great seriousness. And often what we view from our perspective is the appearance that when people break the law, there's not really any consequence. They break it. And they get away with it. And we see that in our world around us all the time, don't we? How many times do we see people who break the law, who do things that are just categorically wrong, come off smelling like a rose, as if nothing was ever going to happen to them because of their consequence, because of their sin, no consequence. Here's what we need to understand is going on here. God sends out his word, and the Almighty sees everything that takes place. When we sin, the commandments of God stand against us. And eventually, unless we deal with that sin, that will condemn us and bring judgment upon us. Now thankfully as New Testament believers we have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ and that personal relationship with him has brought us into a place to where we experience forgiveness for our sin. Jesus Christ bore the consequences of our sin upon himself when he died on the cross. So we stand forgiven. That's our blessed state because of Jesus and his grace and his love. But even that doesn't give us as believers carte blanche to run out and say, well, I'm forgiven, so I'll go out and do more stuff and get forgiven more. That's not the idea of Scripture. The idea of Scripture is God transforms us, changes us, but also God disciplines us If we're in the place to where we sin against God, God, because he loves us as a loving parent, will bring discipline into our lives and let us experience some of the immediate consequences of sin. Not the eternal ones because they are dealt with in Christ, but certainly the immediate consequences. I find it significant in this text that when it talks about the scroll coming and landing on the houses where these sins are being committed. Look at the last sentence of that fourth verse. It says this: It will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. Now, once again, think about where these people are. They're in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed Jerusalem was nothing but a pile of timbers and stones because 70 years prior, the Babylonians leveled Jerusalem. When the Word of God in this text is talking about how the commandments of God and disregarding them bring consequences, everyone who listened to Zechariah's vision had a visual aid. And when those words, timbers and stones, were uttered by Zechariah, don't you think that the people who heard that kind of looked around? Wow. That's exactly what happened. As human beings, we can look and we can see the consequences of sin. We can eloquently discuss the consequences of sin in others. But what Zechariah is reminding them of, and what the Word of God reminds us of, is this. If those were the consequences for them, why do we think that when we behave in the same way, there won't be consequences for us? That probably drove home in the hearts of the people who heard this. But then we come to the next vision. And as we come to the next vision, we find another unusual image that's given us in this vision. It says, separate yourself from wickedness. This is the principle that we're looking at. And it it tells us to do this through the image of a woman in a basket. Look at what it says. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, look up. And see what this is that is appearing. And I asked, What is it? And he replied, It's a measuring basket. And he added, This is the iniquity of the people of this land. And then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. And he said, This is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket. And push the lead cover down over its mouth. Now, again, when we look at this as people in our generation, in our time, as Americans, we look and we say, What in the world is this about? What are they talking about? The context of this passage is still in the arena of sin. Zechariah is talking about it in another way. And what he's saying is that there is still sin among the people. And he uses the imagery of a measuring basket to represent the iniquity of the people of the land. Now, why a measuring basket? Think about the purpose of a measuring basket. I'm going to give you one guess as to what a measuring basket is for. Measuring. Very good. Measuring. Now, what does that have to do with sin and iniquity? Many Bible scholars believe that the measuring basket represents commercialism that had come into Jerusalem. And a lot of what was going on in the first vision, the theft and the swearing falsely, identify some of the sins that are attendant with people who look and say, I will do whatever it takes to scratch out an existence and move ahead there are many people who look and say business is business and religious things are religious things and the two don't mesh i'll do whatever i want to do as far as business and i'll let the moral standards that should guide me play another role in other parts of my life listen we can't compartmentalize our lives Our spiritual life should inform and guide every aspect of our life. We shouldn't look and say, this is this area, this is this area, and the two have nothing to do with one another. When Zechariah is calling the people to task because of the vision that God had given them, he's talking about this measuring basket And it's representing iniquity of the people throughout the land. Iniquity, sin. Doing evil, that's the idea. The people of Israel were engaged in terrible sin. They had reverted, they had gone back to it. And the area that they showed most of their sin in was in their business dealings. But then the vision goes on. As we continue in verse 7, it says, the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket was a woman. Now, ladies, he is not being a woman hater here. When we look at wickedness in the original Hebrew, it is a feminine word, okay? And what I mean by that is in many languages there are Endings that are masculine, feminine, or neuter. What we find for the word wickedness is, in Hebrew, it has a feminine ending. Now, when we look at that, we don't know why it does. It just does. So the imagery of the woman is taking care of the grammatical aspect of what's going on here. That's part of the explanation. But what we're going to see a little bit later is that in the book of Revelation, when we get a little further into this text, there's also a woman who is mentioned there that is associated with some of what the rest of the vision discusses, and we're going to find out who she is and what that is when we come to it. But for now, we see this woman that is in this basket, the lead cover over the basket, which, by the way, is very unusual to put over a basket. It's lifted off, and like a jack-in-the-box, not really. But this woman comes out of the basket, and in full view, he knows that she represents wickedness. So you have a basket of iniquity containing a woman of wickedness. Bad picture, isn't it? So what happens to this woman? It says in verse 8, she's pushed back into the basket and pushed the lead cover over the mouth of the basket, and so she's contained. And then the rest of this vision goes on. But let's pause here for a moment. When this passage describes this woman being pushed back into the basket, when this passage describes the iniquity that the basket represents, it's describing the people of God. These were people who were supposedly the followers of God. And so Zechariah, God himself in giving Zechariah this vision, is calling the people to examine themselves, to look and to say, this represents our sin. This represents our behavior. This is God calling us to task. Sin has to be dealt with. It had grown rampant throughout the land, and God was identifying that. Isn't it easy to just ignore sin? We become desensitized to it, don't we? As it progresses. We're in a place to where it's so much around us that we very much ignore it. We become used to it. It's there, and it's no big deal. Things that used to shock us. Now are commonplace. When you have an inoculation, you have a small part of a disease that's put into your body so it can build antibodies against it. And you're inoculated against it. Isn't that what we find with sin very often? We see it around us. We become inoculated by it, insensitive to it. And there's nothing shocking about it anymore. It's just there. This basket represents a very serious character flaw that had come into Israel. Iniquity, wickedness. It was there. It was visible. They could see it. But then... This goes on. And what the writer, Zechariah, begins to share with us is a spirit of Babylon that had to be removed from the people. Look at verse 9. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with wind in their wings, and they had wings like those of a stork. And they lifted the basket between heaven and earth. And we have no idea who these women represent. Some say they're messengers of God, angels. Some say they're just divine messengers. We don't know. Remember, this is a vision. They probably represent something, but I'm going to be real honest with you and say I read half a dozen commentaries And I got half a dozen confusing answers. So I'm not going to go there. But what I am going to go to is what they do with the basket. These messengers lift up the basket from earth and then look at verse 10. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. And then look at verse 11. He replied to the country... Of Babylonia. Now, some of you may have different versions, and in those versions it will say Shinar. And it's being taken there to build a house for it. And then this statement. When it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. Or some versions even say set on a pedestal. So what in the wide world of sports is going on? What's with this basket being flown up by two women with stork wings and taken to Babylon? Here's what's going on. We need to understand the place of Babylon in biblical history. We can trace Babylon to the book of Genesis. There was a man named Nimrod Now, those of you who work construction, you've probably heard somebody say, now watch some Nimrod come along and do this, right? I know I've heard that a lot of times when I work construction. Probably have said it myself, you know, the Nimrod, you know. We've used that term. Who in the world was Nimrod? When we look in the book of Genesis, Nimrod was the founder of Babylon. And Nimrod was an individual who was noted for his rebellion. Nimrod was a person that just was oppressive, was difficult. He is mentioned in Genesis as not a wonderful person to follow. But then we see even more about this place that was called Shinar, or later Babylon. Leave your finger in Zechariah, and I'm going to make you let your fingers do the walking to Genesis chapter 11. And in the book of Genesis chapter 11, we find an interesting text about Babylon. In verses 1 through 5, we come to the Tower of Babel. And guess where the Tower of Babel is? Shinar, which is also Babylon. Look at what the text says. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, this sounds innocent if we aren't thinking about what they're really saying. First of all, a tower that reaches to heaven. In other words, we by our own works will reach heaven. That's our goal. We're going to build that so high that we'll be at the pearly gates. That's the idea. Secondly, they are coming together in such a way that there is no mention of God, no interest in God. It's all about man. It's all about us achieving and coming together and globalization. That's the first earmarks of that idea. Let's all come together. Let's do neat things. Exclude God from the picture, but let's all come together. One world. That's their goal. That's their purpose. That's their plan. Look at verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, that nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. God confused their plot, their plan, because what they were doing was wicked. Their plan, let's leave God out of the picture. Let's achieve whatever we want by our own goals, our own strength, God has no part to play in any of this. It's all about us. That is the spirit of Babylon. But you know, Babylon's story doesn't end there. You see, when we go into the New Testament, there's a mention of Babylon in the book of Revelation. And notice this text from Revelation chapter 17, verse 5. On her forehead, a name was written, a mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Now, this is a whole study in and of itself, but in the New Testament, there will arise a group. That's identified with the spirit of Babylon, certainly, Babylon the Great. But look at what she does she goes to war with the followers of God, and she sees to the martyrdom of the witnesses of Jesus. When this passage is talking about this wickedness and this iniquity being transported to Babylon, it's talking about the centrality of this spirit of wickedness and iniquity that has characterized Shinar or Babylon throughout the centuries. Now, whether the location, which is now modern-day Iraq, is where all of this transpires, or whether this is a figure of an entity that is yet to come, I'm not prepared to be dogmatic on either one of those views. What I am prepared to be dogmatic on is this. There is a spirit of Babylon that stands against the people of God, the purpose of God, the things of God. And so what Zechariah is saying here is this iniquity, this wickedness is going to be taken there and there it will be raised up on a a, a platform, a pedestal and it will be held up as their God, their worship. Do people actually worship wickedness and iniquity? You better believe it, right? Right? Look at how wickedness and depravity are celebrated by many. It's upheld as a virtue to those who stand against the things of God. And we see it play out all the time, don't we? What we find here is this is a part of God's plan, something that he has included in prophecy, and something that had immediate application for the people of Zechariah's day, but has long-term application for today and moving forward. This iniquity, this wickedness, has a big role in future events. In fact, in the fourth verse, just prior to the passage we read, it says this. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, and she had in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things in her immorality. The image there of the woman being clothed in purple, the idea of royalty, scarlet, again the idea of royalty adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, all of this is wealth. And so a lot of what will transpire in the future because of this wickedness and this iniquity is driven by wealth. The same issues that were going on in Zechariah's day where the commercialism had taken a foothold with the people of God. So there's a warning here to the people of God. Babylon was a place of extreme wealth. Did you know that when the exile was finished and Jewish people had the opportunity to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, many of the Jewish people elected to remain in Babylon? Not just many, but most. And do you know why? We've settled in. We're comfortable here. This is where we make our money. This is where we've built our lives. We have a nice home. Why would we leave here when things are so comfortable? Never mind there's no place to worship God. There's not a temple. Never mind that God has called us as his people to go back to Jerusalem. We're hanging here. They had taken the people of God out of Jerusalem and placed them in Babylon. But guess what? The people who had left Babylon and gone to Jerusalem, God had taken the people out of Babylon, but they hadn't taken Babylon out of their lives. They were still captured by the materialism and by the sin that they had embraced as a people in Babylon. You know, there's a message there for us. And with this, we'll close. As a people of God, we're citizens of heaven. Our place is at the Savior's side. That's where we are positionally. But we still have to live... In this world, the more we look at this world, the more parallels we see to what's described in Scripture as Babylon, that spirit of Babylon. The idea that it's the material things that really matter, that really count; those are the things that I will invest in. Those are the things that I will embrace. These can become too precious, too dear to us. You know what our responsibility is to remember our citizenship. I'm a citizen of heaven where my Savior is seated at the right hand of God. Those are the things that I'll invest in. Those are the things that I will allow to guide me, not the things of this world that would draw me away from God. The things of wickedness Things of iniquity will not last. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, those things are vanquished. They're done. They were already vanquished at the cross as far as their power. But when Jesus returns during his rule, he will crush iniquity. He will crush wickedness. They will have power no more. We, as the people of God, need to understand that and embrace righteousness revealed in God's truth. Don't become entangled and wrapped up in the things of Babylon because they lead us nowhere. Embrace the things of God. Let's pray.